0: Listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, October the 26th, in the year of our Lord 2020. We are live. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and as is our custom on Mondays, we like to take a look at the readings for the following Sunday. Now, there is a Pentecost Sunday, but last week, for example, it was substituted Reformation Day. This week, which is November the 1st, it's going to be All Saints Day that we're going to be celebrating. And there's three readings. The one is from Revelation chapter seven. And it talks about when you get to heaven, wow, things are really going to be different. There'll be no more hunger, no more thirst. The sun shall not strike you, nor any scorching heat and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That would be a wonderful reading to do a sermon on this coming Sunday. Also is the Holy Gospel from Matthew 5, which we often refer to as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit isn't referring to wealth. It's talking about you have nothing in you to... Work your way into eternal life. There's nothing you can do to merit salvation. And when you realize you are poor in spirit, then that's proper repentance. And guess what? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. But the text we're going to look at right now is the epistle reading from First John chapter three, one to three. It's only three verses long, but it has some tremendous thoughts from my point of view. So let's take a look at it, beginning with verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Obviously, John is writing to Christians and he's talking about the tremendous love, and he himself wrote about that in his gospel, John three sixteen, for God so loved, what the elect, no the world. Well, why do I make that distinction? Because Calvin believed that Jesus only died for the elect, that is believers, whereas Christianity properly teaches that Jesus died for all, and that, therefore, everyone's sin has been forgiven. In in fact, in Adonis Trushan yesterday, I, I made that point. For example, there are a lot of people, if they are asked, how can I get the forgiveness of sins? They will say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins. That's actually false teaching. What? Because when Jesus died on the cross, everyone's sins were forgiven, even unbelievers. Will we make a distinction between justification, between objective justification and subjective justification? Objectively, everyone's sins Have been forgiven by Jesus Christ on the cross. Subjectively, you receive that gift through faith in Jesus Christ. So, when somebody would ask me, like I'm driving around in Uber and we get into a theological conversation, and I would ask them, How do you think your sins are forgiven? They will say, Well, I have to be a better person. I have to do good works, Uh, I have to believe in Jesus, that's how I get my sins forgiven. And then I answer, no, your sins have been forgiven. They were forgiven at the cross. In In other words, your sins have been forgiven, and therefore, through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive that gift of the forgiveness of sins. You can reject the gift. I I often like using this kind of indication. A son really hates his father. Maybe his father abused him as he was growing up, and he gets away from the house as soon as he can, maybe when he was 16 years old. Ten years later, a lawyer calls him and says, Your father has died, and there's a reading of the will and you have been left $100,000. But you have to be at the reading of the will to receive it. But the son so despises his father, he says, I don't want to even be at the reading of the will. I don't care to receive his money. So the question is, is $100,000 the son's? And the answer is, yes, it is. According to the last will and testament of his father, he left that 100000 for the son. But does he ever receive it? And because of his hatred of the father, he refuses it and therefore never receives it. That's how Christianity works. You have received the gift of the forgiveness of sins. But you can reject it through unbelief. You don't want it. It's not a command to take it. It's an invitation to receive it. And remember, C.F.W. Walther gave a wonderful example of the difference between a command and an invitation. Somebody is really hungry, so you take them to a restaurant and tell them, order whatever you want and eat it. I'll pay for it and the person looks at you and says, I'm sorry, I don't follow anybody else's commandments telling me what to do. (laughs) Now, who would say that? Obviously, if he's hungry enough, he would be pleased. And he understands it not as a commandment he has to obey, but as CFW Walther points out, as an invitation to receive a free gift. That's the purpose of the church, to invite people to receive the free gift of the forgiveness of sins that is already theirs. And therefore, when that occurs, they are called children of God. Now, I thought there was only one only begotten son. Well, that's correct. We are not begotten children. We are adopted children. And God uses that phraseology in the Bible to talk about how we become His children, and we do that not because of anything in us. Oh, a few weeks ago we were talking about C.F.W. Walther's lectures, and he was criticizing Melancton. Melancton later in his life was talking about the idea that when somebody is chosen by God. There must be something in that person that God recognizes as, well, deserving election. And of course, that is wrong. There is nothing in the Bible that indicates why some are saved and others are not. It's going to be my first question at Gabriel's booth of unanswered questions. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to ask that question, (laughs) But if I do, it'll be interesting, the answer, if there's an answer even in heaven. So, we are called children of God. The next part of verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What does that mean? We are not recognized as children of God because the world doesn't recognize the true God. I was listening to an individual who is very conservative when it comes to political matters, but he had a lecture on why he doesn't like the question, do you believe in God? And his answer was this. If you say you believe in God, then you would be perfect in your works. Every time you're not perfect in your works, that's saying you don't believe in God. And so he didn't like that question because he knew he was not perfect in his works. But you see, he's got the wrong God. He doesn't know the true God. The true God is like a parent who has a child that misbehaves? Does the parent say, Oh boy, I'm going to kick this kid out of my house because he didn't obey me and he wasn't at home in time for supper. He kept playing baseball for another twenty minutes. No no parents gonna do that. They continue to love even an undisciplined child. Now They may give some consequence to bad behavior to help the child learn not to do that, but they don't take away their love from the child. That's the God we have. He loves not just good Christians. He loves sinful Christians, and Christians do every sin. Uh, you can go as i've done uh, to prison and speak to prisoners in jail or the federal prison one time i had the opportunity you're talking to uh, a murderer or somebody who stole from the bank or abused women etc and they have come to believe in jesus christ guess what those sins have been forgiven in the temporal realm they're being held accountable for their crime. But in the spiritual realm, God is not holding them accountable for their crimes. Heaven is their home. Now, this is really an important point. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, here's a principle that I came across in studying for a Bible study recently. There is nothing in Christianity that is so clear that faith is unneeded. I want to say that again. There's no teaching or doctrine of Christianity that is so clear that you can understand it apart from faith. If you don't have faith, you will not understand Christianity. And that's why the world does not know God, because they don't have faith. Let let me give you an example of what Christianity teaches. I was uh, preaching in front of a congregation of many people yesterday, and I looked at them And I said, uh, put your hand up if you are sinless. And only one person put their hand up. (laughs) And I made the point that that person was correct. Because I don't really care what you feel. I don't really care what you think about yourself. What I care about is how does God think about you? And if you are a Christian, which means you have faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead for your justification, therefore through faith, God doesn't consider you to be a sinner. You are sinless because you also have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's talked about, by the way, in our readings uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 7. One of the elders addresses God, who are those clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And the answer is, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, isn't that interesting? Through the blood of the land they end up with white robes, because they are the robes of justification. And what does it mean? The tribulation. The world. We live in a world where you will suffer. Suffering is the understanding of what happens in this world, particularly since it's the world of Satan. So How you deal with suffering makes a huge difference. Those of faith can look to the promises of God, and they will be comforted by that. Those without faith, boy, they find no comfort at all. So there's a teaching of Christianity that the members of the Christian congregation who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior they are sinless. That is not clear, because the more you get to know members of the congregation, the more you realize how sinful they are. In fact, they themselves confess, I'm a poor miserable sinner, deserving nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. Really, really critical. Now, what does this mean, that the world does not know him? how do we get the world to know Jesus? It's referred to as apologetics. And the word apologetics doesn't mean, well, we apologize for what we believe. It's really the word for a defense. How do we defend our teaching? There are a number of different kinds of apologetics, And the one that I am not very much happy with is called evidential apologetics, where people try to give you evidence that what Christianity teaches is true. But there is no evidence that you can give to an unbeliever because of this principle that nothing becomes clear to an unbeliever about the Christian faith until faith occurs. And nobody can receive faith by hearing about so-called evidence that the Bible is true. Now, Concordia Publishing House puts out a Sunday school literature that I talk about on issues, etc., And each part of it has a section on apologetics. But I'm very happy that when I look at what they are writing about apologetics, they're always quoting other Bible verses. They're not giving any evidence that Christianity is true except for the Bible verses. In, in other words, this is really important. There was a time when the Pharisees, and this is in Mark 8, chapter 11 and following, they came and argued with Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, you really need to know the original Greek there because the word for sign is some kind of evidence that there is a God. Now, that word doesn't mean you believe in the true God. In fact, it's found in James Chapter 2, because what happens is in James chapter 2, we find out that verse 19 you believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Why? Because they believe that there is a God that word in the Greek means you believe that something is true, but you don't believe in God because you don't have the right understanding of God. So there's a lot of Americans. I'll ask them in my cab, uh, do you believe in God? Oh yes, I believe there is a God. Then my second question shows me what kind of God they believe in. I always ask this What promise has the God you believe in given you? And there's silence. Because the God they're believing in is the American God, so to speak, of creation and this sort of thing. It's not the God of the Bible. They they don't know the promises. Now, if they say, well, the promise I believe is that my sins are forgiven, then I know I'm talking to a Christian. But if they have no promises, they don't believe in the true God. There's no way you can give any evidence to someone who is an unbeliever about the true God. The only thing you can do is speak the word of God. In fact, here's another principle. One cannot see until they first believe. What does that mean? Well, think of the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, not counting women and children, were fed. Boy, they believed that Jesus had power. They saw the miracle but they didn't believe in Jesus as their Savior. They ran after him in order to make him a bread king, to make him a temporal king, thinking that they were going to get all kinds of things from him. In other words, you can see the work of God in the world, but that doesn't tell anybody who the true God is. Every religion in the world that has a God outside of Christianity, never has the true God, the true God that is a God of mercy and grace. It's always a God of judgment. You get what you deserve. In, In other words, there is no evidence that the world will ever get that will show them who the true God is. In fact, Jesus says this in verse 12 of Mark chapter 8. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. That is tremendous. Because if Jesus were to give a sign to the generation— That he is the Christ, the Son of God, then that would go against the mission of the Father, where he is to speak the word of God that results in faith. First, faith comes, then you believe what Jesus is doing. Even the miracles that Jesus did were not signs, because he would heal. A person who is demon possessed. Now, the believers understood Jesus was the Messiah, but the unbelievers, they saw the sign. Guess what? Oh, he's doing it by Beelzebub, the devil. And Jesus said, That doesn't make any sense. Why would the devil have me take out demons that he put into a person? This is a contradiction. And remember when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, there were those like Mary and Martha who already believed he was the Christ, the Son of God, and that they would have a resurrection on the last day. So they saw the resurrection of Lazarus as testimony that Jesus was the Christ because they already had faith. But what did the unbelieving Pharisees They believed that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. But for them, it was the last straw. And they decided at that point that Jesus needed to be put to death. You see, the world looks for a sign. But we Christians, there is no evidence we can give to them about the truth of Christianity, except the Word of God. And therefore, in catechetical instruction, we keep showing the Bible verses that show the truth and allow the Holy Spirit, who alone can create faith in a person. And when that faith is created, then everything looks different. So that's the point of this Bible study. Nothing is so clear in Christianity that faith is unneeded. And therefore, one does not see first and then believe, but one believes first and then sees. I'm Tom Baker on Tomorrow's Law and Gospel. We'll be taking a look at a hymn for All Saints Day and that is for all the saints who from their labors rest. We'll do that with Mark Smith. Till tomorrow then, God bless you.